Campaign 2022. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. We are just over a month away from some interesting primaries across the United States, including in Texas. And there's a remarkable congressional race shaping up in the 30th district of Texas. This is uh, incorporates uh, essentially most of Dallas. And it was a seat that had been held for many years by Eddie Bernice Johnson, the Democrat. This is one of the bluest of bluest congressional districts in the country. Uh, and there's a remarkable progressive candidate who is entering a crowded field to try to win this primary. Her name is Jessica Mason. She's an organizer and an activist and joins us now. Uh, Jessica, first of all, congratulations on jumping in. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for people who don't know anything. Thanks, David. Uh, my name is Jessica Mason. I am a Navy veteran and I currently work as an affordable housing organizer in low to moderate income tax credit properties across the district. I am a daughter of Dallas. I grew up on the south side with my mother in an area that was devastated by a loss of industrial jobs, um, redlining, and an overall lack of economic investment. My father was a teamster. My mom, Lisa, worked 12 plus hours a day for a millionaire financier, but was paid starvation wages and really just couldn't afford to keep the lights on at home. So you guys were essentially housing insecure. How is that shaping your policies now? What do you see as being something that you could do as a member of Congress if elected and assuming Democrats maintain control? What would be a good policy to try to help with housing? Well, um, as far as housing is concerned, Dallas, um, we have a really a bad affordable housing situation here. We have 19 affordable housing units for every 100 people in need. And as I mentioned before, I'm working also in these affordable housing communities and people just aren't receiving the resources, enough resources they need um, to you know, make ends meet. I think that when we talk about um, affordable housing and the lack thereof, we need to start investing more in, in building new public housing infrastructure. And I think that that's something that um, is was in Biden's Build Back Better bill. But unfortunately, it looks like there's really no chance at, at that passing at this time. But that would really be the biggest fix to the issue that we're seeing here in Dallas. Is that something you would advocate in terms of Democrats breaking when they talk about breaking apart the bill and, and, and trying to vote on individual pieces? Is that something that as a standalone you think could get through Congress? I think that there are interests that are going to fight very hard against getting bills like this passed, whether it's wrapped up in one large bill, whether they're individual bills. I don't think it really makes a difference. I think that it's just, um, you know, apathy towards providing resources for those most in need and prioritizing um, providing resources for those who have been really, you know, doing well throughout the pandemic, those who have actually gotten richer um, actually from and through through this pandemic. Well, and it also, it feels like it's more of a challenge right now for Democrats just because of the political headwinds in terms of it looks like Republicans may gain seats. They may gain enough to take uh, take control of the US House. Given that difficult landscape, uh, Joe Biden's approval numbers are underwater. Why now? Why enter a congressional race now as a progressive? Well, a lot of people are very frustrated with the lack of, of progress on you know passing Build Back Better, especially in my district. Again, there's a lot of apathy towards voting overall, this district is a safe blue district, but we have one of the lowest you know, turnout numbers in the entire state of Texas. And I think what people are wanting is someone who can go in and fight, and that will stay true to what we're trying to accomplish here. I mean, you know, black, brown women, 
came out to vote Biden into office for this social agenda. And the fact that that's not being delivered is really having effect on, on voters willingness to, to want to turn out again. So what I'm doing is I'm bringing in in that confidence again and telling them, you know, we're not going to give up on this. We're going to do whatever it takes to get this passed. Let's suppose that you win. And again, it's, you know, suppose that Democrats control the House, but there's still Senators Manchin and Cinema there in the US Senate. And let's suppose you had an opportunity to, to meet them and say, hey, here's why you need to change and support this legislation. How would you make that pitch? Of course, I always, you know, talk about the people in my district. Um, they're they're the most important things to me, and I want to make sure that I'm always speaking from their point of view. So I would go to Mansion and Cinema and explain to them this is well, this is what my community is facing, and you know, speaking again about turnout and and having people who actually want to be involved in the democratic process. It's important that we deliver on these issues if we want to increase turnout in state states like Texas, where we have. You know, a governor who's obstructing pretty much, you know, our right to vote and, and, and the right to have, you know, choose what we want to do with our own bodies. So this has, you know, consequences that supersede just, you know, the federal level. This has consequences on the state level. That's how I would go about doing it. Not sure if that would be enough to convince them since. So many people have have tried over the past few months, but that's the case that I would make. I'm so glad that you mentioned abortion rights and what's been going on in Texas, because there is this sort of a debate in a lot of democratic circles about whether it's helpful or hurtful even now to bring up abortion rights, reproductive rights in the terms of a political campaign. That a lot of you know more centrist districts that some Democrats think it doesn't help them. But it sounds like in a place like Dallas, this is a this is a big issue. Is that fair to say? I would say so. We actually had one of the largest women's right marches, rights marches um, a couple of months back. It is something that means a lot to, to people here and especially in an area that is, you know, majority black, low income, they are affected by this bill more more than anyone else. So it's something that you know, people want to see change, whether you believe in it or not. I think that we can all agree that women should have the choice to choose about, you know, to, to make decisions about their own reproductive health. And would that be something you would be pushing? And let's assume that the Supreme Court rolls back Roe versus Wade this spring. Then the option is, I suppose, for Congress to get involved and try to pass some federal legislation. Is that something you would advocate for? Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's past time for us to codify Roe versus Wade. Um, and to, to protect um, you know the bodies and well-beings of, of, of people and women you know in the United States. There's an argument from some folks that uh, you know you can't do everything in Congress and that you have to set priorities. Uh, we've talked about affordable housing, we've talked about reproductive rights. What would the priorities be and, and sort of what would be the sort of the top couple of priorities and what are the things that you imagine can wait a while? I would say we really need to focus on rebuilding our economy and not just, you know, measured by how well the stock market is doing, but you know how people are feeling here on the ground. I know that, you know, in the news cycle, you know, we're talking about how well the economy is recovering, but that's just not being felt here with people in in my community. So I think the first thing that we need to try to, you know, attack is is our economy and then that's passing some of those provisions in the Build Back Better bill that will make life a lot easier for people and that's, you know, pushing for universal pre-K, um, Medicare expansion, um, lowering the cost of insulin and and more and and also expanding the child tax credit. I think that should be, you know, for First and foremost, all the policies that we pursue 
or that we prioritize need to be ones that are gonna have a direct effect on the people at the bottom, the working class, the middle class, the people who have been hurt most by our you know, constant economic downturns. I want to ask you a little bit about foreign policy because Ukraine and Russia certainly in the news. There's every indication that Russia may be about to invade Ukraine. There's obviously a debate here in the United States about whether it is worth actually putting US troops into battle if in fact Russia does cross into Ukraine. What would you do? Would you be satisfied with just sanctions? Do you think that if Russia does go into Ukraine, the US troops should be there to greet them? Um, you know, this coming from my perspective as as a veteran, I think that we should always try diplomacy before anything. That that's very important to me. I don't like the thought of, you know, sending troops overseas and them losing their lives. Um, and I, you know, when there there are other ways that we can address it. And I have to answer that question again from the standpoint of the people in my community who I am aiming to represent. They really have no interest in getting involved in military conflict in Ukraine. Um, I hear a lot of people, you know, saying that there are needs that need to be taken care of here that we have yet yet to accomplish. They have, you know, no interest in sending more money to Ukraine when we're still waiting on much needed resources in our community. We mentioned that the primary there is March the 1st. Tell us a little bit about the race, how many candidates are in it, and what do you see as being some of the defining issues or the things that are gonna make or break your campaign? So the race, um, I was the first person to announce my candidacy. I was actually challenging the the incumbent um, who has been in the seat for 30 years. Um, because you know I'm a, I'm a native of this district and I, I really wanted to see a lot of change. After she has decided to retire, then we had you know a group of people you know throw their name in the race. So it's like a nine-way primary. The most pressing issues, I think we differ on what we think that the most pressing issues are. We have some people who are you know primarily focused on voting rights, some people who are you know just really okay with you know continuing things how 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 they've been you know going and, and not really you know challenging the system i think where i come in on this race is i'm trying to change the system i'm trying to change the status quo and, and do away with the some of the systemic inequities that have you know harmed harmed my community um, for me it's it's healthcare it's housing and i think for other people it's more of you know more of the same we talk about the district being a very blue district, but is it is it a progressive blue district as far as you can see? Yes. So when you when you go and you talk to people in the community, again, as I mentioned before, I started this race before anybody. I've knocked more doors than anyone, and my job allows me to be very close to the people in the community every single day. And when we talk about the issues, we don't talk about them in in you know concepts of it being progressive or moderate, we just talk about you know the issues, and a lot of people are asking for more funding, more resources, more social social policies that, of course, that we would consider to be progressive. In our community, we just don't break down things like progressive and and, and moderate. We don't we don't see it that way. It's just what are the policies that we need to to bring economic justice to to, te- to Texas thirty. And what do you think will make the difference on March the first? Is it you know simply getting out the vote, getting your supporters being organized? Is it having enough money to make your message get get around? What's what's the key? Um, it's all of those things. It's all of those things. Um, you have to number one. I think the message has to be right. Again, we are in a situation where people are frustrated and they're kind of fed up with the way things have that have the way things have been going, and they don't want more of the same. 
But in order for them to know that they have someone that that's ready to make that change, you have to be able to deliver that message and get it out. And of course, we know that takes money. You have to be able to get on the airwaves, you have to be able to send out mailers. And again, you have to have the infrastructure to knock doors and be able to meet people face to face. Jessica Mason, good luck to you in the primary on March the 1st, Texas's Congressional District number 30. The general election, of course, in November, but we'll see what happens March the 1st. Jessica Mason, thanks again, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. You got it. The rich get richer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There's a new report from Oxfam that has found that over the past two years of the pandemic, the 10 wealthiest people on the planet have doubled their money. $700 billion between the 10 wealthiest billionaires increased over two years to $1.5 trillion. Here to talk about that, Alencia Johnson. She's a Democratic strategist. She's a former advisor to Vice President Biden. She was also on the Elizabeth Warren presidential campaign. Um, Alencia, were you surprised by these numbers that the wealthy have done so well over the past two years? I'm not surprised actually, because if we know anything about our tax codes here in the United States is that they do tend to favor the wealthiest. And as we know, History has shown us as the unfortunately the poor get poorer, the rich do get richer. They get richer off the backs of low income folks and marginalized folks, people who have to work every single day. So I'm not surprised, I'm just a bit sickened with how it's happening in the middle of this devastating pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's really astounding some of the figures. They're increasing their wealth. The 10 wealthiest people on the planet are increasing their wealth by $15,000 every second. Um, there does seem to be some agreement, at least with some conservatives that I've heard who say, yes, wealth inequality is a problem. Their argument though is, well, you can't have the government tax these wealthy people in order to solve it. Um, why not? Yeah, I, I don't actually understand why they don't believe that, right? I actually believe that where much is given, much is required. You are required to take care of your community. But even if we wanna talk about uh, the law and about taxes, we, we know the history in this country, it was up until the Reagan years that wealthy people were actually taxed at the same rate, if not more, than those who were middle and low income. And so it worked then for our society. Why can it not work now? Well, that's because, let's be very honest, a lot of politicians, both sides, but a lot of politicians have a lot of interest from some of these very wealthy people and these people who benefit from some of these tax codes. And so uh, their interest may be their own personal gain. Um, but it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that I worked for Senator Elizabeth Warren, her presidential campaign. And yes, we got a lot of heat for introducing the wealth tax, but we weren't even talking about an, a large number of a wealth tax, right? Just two cents on every dollar among $50 million, right? I'm going back to that policy proposal. But we talked about what we could take care of, childcare, uh, community college. We could take care of so many issues that we're fighting for still to this day that would be that would make or break so many families in this country. And so it's interesting that conservatives say that when they like to say that they're the party of family values and what couldn't be more valuable than actually enhancing the lives of families and helping them grow and reach that opportunity that they are, are striving for. Some of these conservatives say, well, look, the opportunity should be given by private industry and not by government. So they suggest that there should be some sort of incentive to corporations to somehow try to limit or keep down CEO pay while raising the wages, the wages of, of workers. 
it sounds nice to sort of you know have corporations do this themselves, but are there any practical incentives that we could give them to do the right thing? You know, well, we know that that actually isn't going to work. I believe I, I heard uh, I was listening to a podcast um, from The Daily actually over the summer, and it was talking about Jeff Bezos. His salary is not even a hundred thousand dollars, and of course, we know Jeff Bezos is not paying a lot in taxes, and so that piece and leaving it up to corporations isn't actually going to work. I think there is some, there should be some incentive in the conversation because if we're gonna think politically, majority of Republican voters tend to be low income white workers. Why wouldn't you want to incentivize them with actually fair wages or with the understanding that you know what? This person who is making millions and sometimes billions off of my labor, they are also getting taxed, right? But the conservatives like to make the boogeyman other people beyond themselves for actually not regulating these businesses in the way that they should and regulating the wealth in this country. There's also been some suggestion, I think it may have been floated by Bernie Sanders in the last presidential campaign, I'm not sure, but this idea of uh, of putting a, like a penny tax on Wall Street trades, financial tra- transactions, uh, with the idea being that so many people are making money simply by trading pieces of paper as opposed to doing actual work. The, the pushback to that, at least in terms of politics, would be that you know the Democrats tend to get a lot of money as well from the financial services industry as Republicans, and so therefore some sort of financial penny tax on transactions is a non-starter. Do you agree? You know, I actually would agree that we do need to do a penny tax on these investments. And yes, it is frustrating to hear that both sides of the aisle um, are not in support of it because that is how people build wealth. I mean. As someone who plans to retire at some point, I also make investments, but I have to, I am taxed at a different rate than some of these other people, obviously, because I am not the top 1% of this country. Um, But, you know, I think there's something to be said about the integrity that has to be in this conversation, the integrity around the people who are making these laws and pushing back against these laws are probably doing so because they also benefit. And so how can we have a conversation about you know, ensuring that every person in this country has an opportunity to build wealth, right? The, the racial wealth gap is widening and it's gotten even worse in this pandemic, that people are able to purchase homes, right? That inflation doesn't harm people in the way that it is right now. Then we have to have a conversation about, yes, investments, instead of hiding your money and moving it around and so that you can escape and evade some taxes, you actually need to be held accountable for that. And so hopefully more uh, more voters are getting engaged in this conversation and that it just kind of leaves the DC beltway, right? It leaves the Wall Street conversations because sometimes we're having it here on the media, we're having it in DC, people are having it in New York. But we're actually not talking to the people that are impacted the most by it. Uh, and those are the people on the ground who could be benefiting from uh, the social services that these taxes could pay for. Is it enough to have transparency? In other words, make sure that every member of Congress, every member of administration has to fully disclose where their interests are in terms of you know finances and where they might benefit from particular legislation? Or does there need to be some sort of actual legislation that prevents people from having certain holdings in order to be able to vote or to take part in a debate over that? I think it's both, honestly. I But I know how Congress works, especially when 
we don't have a majority on one side or a large majority on one side. And so we're gonna have to piecemeal this, right? So let's start with the transparency and then let's move forward and have this conversation of you actually may not be able to be in office if you have certain interests that will skew how you plan to govern, how you plan to regulate. How can I regulate a company that I am a shareholder of? That in itself should just, that is like common sense of we, I know that I'm going to put my interests at first, even if it's subconscious, right? I'm going to put my own interests at first. So I think it's both and knowing how DC works though, we're gonna have to start piecemeal um, and it probably will start with transparency, but even just that piece alone will help voters understand what is happening and give voters the information that they need uh, about who they want to represent them. In addition to voters and the impact that the wealth disparity has on so many people, there's also the I think, according to sociologists, a lot of political fears about global stability, and that at this point, 27 2,750 billionaires now have more wealth than half of the people on the planet. And sociologists will tell you that civilization after civilization collapses when you have such great wealth inequality that exists in any particular society. Do you see the unraveling of our sort of social fabric also because of this? Oh, absolutely I do and it is extremely alarming and you know, America is obviously one of the the wealthiest nation, right? And yet we also have this problem about uh, around poor people and low income folks and then it's exacerbated in so many other countries. And what happens with when that happens? You have unhealthy people, uh, people resort to violence, people resort to crime and that is because there aren't a lot of jobs, a lot of there's scarcity among um, resources because people can't pay for them. Uh, inflation becomes a huge issue, childcare, the list goes on and on and on. And yes, society does end up collapsing, right? Because how can you have workers if they are not healthy, if they are not here? Um, it is all interrelated and I am nervous that you know, we are not having this conversation in a way that gives people the tools that they need to have the conversations that they can have in their kitchen tables, right? The people who are on the media talking about it are also people who sometimes have these interests, right? Uh, the people who are in power have these interests, and it's leaving out the voices of those uh, over, you know, those around the around this world who are impacting uh, the the hardest. I'm so glad you say that because you know I, I, here I am thinking I'm living in Fairfield County, Connecticut, perhaps the wealthiest county in the United States, and we don't see just by driving around you don't see the problems of wealth inequality here. You only see all the people who've made it and have huge homes and huge pieces of land, and it does feel like we are becoming even more sort of divided and perhaps even segregated in how we see these issues and how we experience them. Oh, I agree. The segregation among these issues and it even in the pandemic, you know, it, it if we think about who had to continue to work, people who are marginalized, people who are in rural areas, people who are in, you know, whether food deserts or they don't have access to broadband because they're such desolate poor communities. And these aren't just communities that are people like to think that they're just communities of color, right? We have low-income white people too. Those are also the people who had to continue to go work in these low wages in the grocery stores. They had to deliver those Amazon packages that I was fortunate enough to sit at home and work and have those delivered to me. And there's this disconnect in this conversation of who is bearing the brunt, the very dangerous brunt of this, not just necessarily being overworked, again, back to the pandemic, they're being exposed to the, the, the coronavirus in ways that they may not be able to take care of themselves. So if they get sick, they go to the hospital, they may not have insurance. They may not be able to pay for their five and six figure medical bill because we know how much these hospitals are charging people. All of this is a domino effect 
that really lays the burden on uh, poor people and low income folks while again, lining the pockets of the most wealthy and giving all of the wealth to them, unfortunately, as people continue to get sick and not have opportunity. Alencia, in the final 20 seconds we have left, are you optimistic or pessimistic about wealth inequality in the years ahead? Uh, I, I like to think that I'm an optimist, but <laughs> if, if our political powers, if the, the you know, if the, the power in politics remains in the way that it is and not really representative and reflective of the people who are impacted the most, I could be pessimistic about it. Um, but I am hopeful because there are some of us out there who are fighting for this and fighting for this change. And thankfully, President Biden is also open to having conversations about changing the tax codes. Look, at, I'm, I'm glad that you're optimistic because it is very easy for all of us to think, oh my God, it's only gonna get worse. But as long as there are folks out there who are fighting, who are hopeful, uh, maybe that inspires the rest of us. Alencia Johnson, she's a Democratic strategist. Again, she worked for Vice President Biden. She was on the Elizabeth Warren presidential campaign. Alencia, thanks so much for joining us today, we appreciate it. Thank you. And that will do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Coalfield, John Skip Vulaco, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.